Listener Production. Hey, how you doing? Tom here. Can you believe that in a country like ours, the East Coast was nearly hit by widespread blackouts last week? Well, in this episode of The Briefing, we're going to explain last week's crazy energy crisis and a proposed solution that involves subsidising fossil fuels. A lot of environmental activists and even the Greens are sort of lumped in gas, which is a fossil fuel, in with coal, and it's seen perceived to be just as bad. I don't think the emissions are as bad, but I think we need to have an acceptance by all sides that it's not going to be a smooth transition. There's going to be bumps in the road. So is this a compromise that even renewables advocates will have to accept? That is our briefing in the second half of this episode. First, here are today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Tuesday, the 21st of June. G'day, Tom. Two big state budgets will be announced today in Queensland and New South Wales. And New South Wales is set to spend big with more than $30 billion of new initiatives. It's going to be a budget focused on reform, focused on managing the state's finances responsibly and setting us up for a more prosperous future. That's the New South Wales Treasurer, Matt Keane. So what's on offer is $400 million for elective surgery, $500 million for boosting housing supply, as well as policies overhauling stamp duty. And there's a number of female-focused measures too, from childcare to public safety to helping women in small business. And Queensland is expected to run a small deficit, spending up big on social housing and health. It will be an historic health budget for Queensland, the likes of which Queenslanders have never seen before. So that's Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Queensland Premier. On social housing, they're expected to announce 1,200 new social and affordable homes. Yeah, Tom, and the New South Wales state election is next year in late March. And it's interesting to see that the New South Wales government is spending a lot on women's safety. So things like women's safety in public places and also a whole bunch of money on domestic violence, victim survivors. Yeah, it's an interesting move, especially since at the federal level, the Liberal government was seen to have been punished at the ballot box for ignoring women. So I kind of see this as a bit of a deliberate move to ensure that women aren't forgotten. Yeah, and also I think post-pandemic, there's um, a lot of spending in the health sector because the pandemic showed up massive holes in all of our health systems mm. and also created that massive elective surgery backlog, which they're still trying mm. to deal with in New South Wales and I think probably most states. The ACCC has announced they'll investigate the actions of energy generators during this month's power crisis. So they'll look into any anti-competitive behaviour with a report that's going to be handed to ministers next month. And meanwhile, the proposed capacity mechanism has been announced, which we'll discuss in more detail in our briefing. So the Energy Security Board is proposing that generators, including coal and gas operators, will be paid to guarantee domestic supply. It'll provide that underpinning so that we can ensure that the system remains reliable as we undertake this massive transformation, much more than a transition, this massive transformation of more renewables into the grid. Energy Minister Chris Bowen there. So under the proposal, individual states can exclude certain suppliers, but the Greens don't think this goes far enough. Energy ministers should not prop up the coal and gas industry. That's Adam Bant, the Greens leader. So yeah, as we'll discuss later, this is going to be a really interesting debate as we sort of go through this transition period, waiting for enough dispatchable renewable power with our battery storage to come online, how much we support coal and particularly gas in providing that base load 
um, dispatchable power so that we don't end up with the crisis we witnessed last week on the eastern seaboard. There's a new three-in-one jab in development. We have a three-in-one, which is COVID, flu, and something called RSV. These are all respiratory pathogens that kill people, young and old, uh, every year. So that's the chief medical officer from Moderna, Dr. Paul Barton. Um, he was speaking there on Nine. So RSV stands for Respiratory Sensational Virus, and human trials for a two-in-one jab, that's COVID and the flu, are going to start in a couple of months. And the three-in-one jab, including RSV, um, will come soon after and could be available as early as next year. And the pharmaceutical giant has also revealed a new jab for Omicron variant will be ready by August. So I'd be interested to, to see how what this uptake of this new three-in-one jab is, given the flu jab uptake has been pretty slow. Under a quarter of the adult population and less than 10% of children under five mm. have actually received the flu vaccine. So there does seem to be a bit of a hesitancy or a bit, a bit of a slow response despite our, our strong flu season. Maybe it makes sense because the COVID vaccine uptake's been so much greater to give people the flu vaccine at the same time. I'm in that category. I got my third shot, the booster for, for COVID, but the flu vaccine, I've got no problem with. That. I haven't just just haven't been bothered to do it. Yeah, the same. It's um on. It's been on my to do list for a while, but I've I've just got to take the step and actually get it. And the Brittany Higgins rape trial could be delayed following a speech made at the Logies. Bruce Learman is accused of sexually assaulting Higgins inside Parliament House in 2019. He's pleaded not guilty. And his lawyers have said that he wants to get on with the case, but he wants a fair trial. And this is after a speech by Lisa Wilkinson at the Logies uh, that mentioned the case, which was heard by 800,000 Australians. His legal team has asked the court to consider a new stay application and Lehman is due to stand trial in the ACT Supreme Court next Monday. And there's been strong reactions to the international swimming body's decision to effectively ban trans women from competing in women's sport. Um, here's a reaction from an amateur transgender athlete, Hannah Monty. She slammed the decision. A blanket ban uh, is very, very strong and I think really unnecessary because it's painting something which a lot of people have acknowledged is a very grey area and decided that it's black and white. But it appears many elite athletes are supporting the move. Kate Campbell, who addressed FINA before the decision was made, had this to say. To not draw a line and to not make a stand is to allow this debate to continue and allow hurtful things to be said from both sides and to do nothing. Also, and I, I realise that this may be really harsh, but it will negatively affect uh, female athletes all around the world. So the decision has triggered World Soccer's governing body, FIFA, and World Athletics to review their transgender eligibility policies as well. Yeah, and Olympic silver medalist um, Maddie Groves, she replied to Campbell on Twitter and she, posting, so you ban them from competing with their peers. You're okay with ostracising an already marginalised group, real accepting. So yes, a lot, lots of really strong opinions there. From what I've seen so far, Tom, most um, elite athletes are in support of the move. Um, mm. But I do think you know, if you're going to close one door, um, it probably would have been a good idea to open another. And so FINA has talked about the fact that they're going to look into opening and uh, um, having an open category which would allow trans athletes to compete it probably would have been a good idea to have that up and running to have a you know an, a, an alternative solution
Yeah, it will be really interesting to see if they have that open category ready to roll by the next Olympics. Um, we'll catch you tomorrow, mm-hmm. Antoinette. We're going to talk uh, the energy crisis in just a moment. If there is an opportunity for people to reduce their energy usage, so perhaps not using the dishwasher until you go to bed, that would help. Last week, millions of Australians on the East Coast nearly had the lights go out. It was a perfect storm of factors that meant that politicians were asking us to wind back our energy use during the evenings. Crazy situation. Now, part of the story was that winter hit just as coal and gas prices around the world were escalating. Now, that forced the energy market operator to bring in a price cap, which then meant some of the providers didn't put energy into the grid because that price was too low for them. So that just deepened the crisis, taking us so close to the brink that on Wednesday, the market operator suspended the short-term market and took control over supply. This is the first time we've suspended the market for the uh, national electricity market. And the reason we're doing that is to get real operational control and visibility because we just we, we just didn't have it. So as we now know, the blackouts were avoided, but it was a very close call, which is clearly not acceptable in a developed country like ours. So now that the short term crisis has been averted, attention is turning to the medium term. I think everyone agrees that in the long term, renewables with storage is the solution. But the question in the medium term is how to manage that transition whilst avoiding crises like last week's. So the latest development is that the Energy Security Agency, which is a government body, has proposed a capacity mechanism, which our federal and state leaders will consider. They have something similar in WA already. So what it would do is essentially keep quickly dispatchable power on standby for moments like last week. So let's find out more about the crisis itself and how this capacity mechanism should work and whether it should be funding coal and gas, which is something many environmentalists are very concerned about. Mark Ludlow is a reporter at the Australian Financial Review who's covered the energy sector for years. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. How close did we come to mass blackouts last week? It was a pretty close run thing. There's a whole lot of factors playing into, uh, you know, we had the cold snap starting to winter, so people sort of cranked up air conditioning and heating a lot. We've got the war in Ukraine, which sort of pushed up coal and gas prices. And there's a whole market situation where prices were spiralling out of control. And what the energy regulator did was basically put a price cap of $300 a megawatt hour on how much money these energy companies could earn. And a lot of them were sitting on the sidelines saying, stuff this, I'm not going to bid into the market when that's, I'm only going to get paid this amount of money. And as a result, there was a shortfall of energy in the, in the big eastern states. And the energy market operator was frantically scrambling around to fill that shortfall. It ended up directing companies to bid into the market. And then when that wasn't working, they basically suspended the market. So it was a pretty close run thing, especially in uh, New South Wales, but uh, they managed to scrape through. So when they suspended the market and they essentially decided which companies would supply power to the grid, did they have to compensate those businesses for that, especially if they were supplying power at a loss? Yeah, well, that's the irony of it all. You know, they put this price cap in to try and protect consumers from paying too much for power. But when everything goes pear-shaped and they suspended the market and then basically take over when energy companies bid into the market, they do have to pay them 
compensation for them putting power into the market. So it's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars that the energy market operator is paying to these companies. And lo and behold, that money that they pay is eventually passed on to consumers in the form of higher bills. Yeah. So this debate about whether or not we should be subsidising gas and coal to create enough capacity to have a stable grid as we transition, that ship's already sailed in a sense based on your last answer that, in fact, last week when we suspended the market on the East Coast, we already had to do exactly that. Well, it's a bit of a difficult one because, you know, Australia is not alone. Countries all over the world are dealing with this rapid influx of renewable energy. You know, Australia's got the highest rooftop solar penetration in the world. We've got great resources here, the wind and the, and the sun, to be able to crank in renewable energy. But the problem that we have, and, you know, you probably hear some politicians talking about this, is that at night time when the sun's not uh, shining, there is a potential period there where renewables can't step up. And battery technology, which stores renewable energy, is not quite where it should be. And that's a kind of shoulder period where you need stuff like coal and especially gas to get you through those periods. You've got older coal-fired power stations that were the backbone of the energy grid that are getting old, they're breaking down. You know, half the reason we had these problems last week was because a lot of coal-fired power stations were out for maintenance. You need a kind of bridging technology, and that's what gas was going to be. You know, coal-fired power stations have to run 24 hours a day pumping out emissions. Gas-fired power stations are meant to be great because you can turn them on and off, and they're meant to help step in to help support renewable but you've got a lot of environmental groups that sort of lump in gas with coal and say all fossil fuels is bad. But in a lot of ways, you need some kind of a transition fuel like a gas-fired power station to help you transition to when you have better technology so you can have batteries that can store all this renewable energy we're making. Okay, well, that goes to the next question, which is this new capacity mechanism that's being discussed. So this is being put forward as a solution by the Energy Security Board, which is a government agency that manages our energy security, hence the name. So should that essentially be mostly focused on gas, do you think? Is it the right fuel source to give us that dispatchable power when we need it for these moments where we're not quite meeting demand? Well, that's the thing. The Energy Security Board was set up about five years ago by federal and state energy ministers trying to look at you know, we've got the national energy market, it's changing, and the rules, there's a whole lot of archaic old rules on how it's run. We need to adapt to these energy rules for the move and the, the march to low emissions energy. And what they basically decided was they developed this thing called a capacity mechanism where if it looked like that in situations like last week there was not going to be any sort of dispatchable firm generation and there's potential for load shedding or blackouts, you would then pay certain generators. Well, it's meant to be technology neutral. It's meant to be any. But um, the big debate we're having at the moment is that a lot of people don't want coal and gas as part of that because we're meant to be moving towards a low emissions economy. But in cold reality, I think that they're going to need maybe not so much coal, but definitely gas-fired power to help sort of bridge that gap to net zero by 2050. Do you think the more strident environmentalists maybe need to compromise on the question of gas here, at least for the next few years? Or do you think they're doing the right thing by being quite hardline about not incentivising fossil fuel companies because that would potentially prolong their life and slow down the transition? And therefore, I guess the argument would be that we just really need to go deeper on renewables right now. Well, it's sort of weird, though. We said, you know, we've had the climate wars, as we called it in Australia over the last 
10 years. The previous federal government, the Liberal uh, National Party government, probably didn't help the situation. They came out as being very pro-coal in a lot of sectors. And, you know, there was talk about this capacity mechanism under the previous government. And like you said, it was perceived by some people just to be paying extra payments to coal-fired power to keep it in the grid longer. I just think that's a not, not a helpful way to think about it. I think we've got to be, all sides need to be a bit practical about this, about, okay, we understand there's a transition going on. We want to phase out coal and gas and move towards renewable energy, but we're not quite there with the technology to be able to do that. Mark, in an ideal world, would battery storage be the solution here? And how quickly or slowly is it coming online? How much will, I guess, our storage capacity grow over the next few years? Battery technology is coming along in leaps and bounds, but it can only store so much. Like you might spend millions of dollars on a battery that can store energy, but if things go pear-shaped like they did last week and, and you need them to step in and deliver 500 megawatts of power over a three-hour period in the middle of winter, some of these batteries operating at full tilt might only be able to you know, deliver half an hour's worth of electricity into the grid. So it's not quite there. There's a whole lot of other technology that they're developing, like hydrogen. There's going to be new lower emissions technologies that can help sort of bridge that gap. But we're not quite there at the moment. So how far off do you think it is where we'd be in a position where we wouldn't need a capacity mechanism that relies on gas or coal? Oh, look, it's hard to tell. You know, I know this thing's moving at a pace. What are we, 2022 now? It's, you've got to get to 2050. Because of the way the market is operating at the moment, you got all this renewable energy flooding the market that is really, really cheap, and that's great. And then you've got coal-fired power stations, which are getting towards the end of their life. A lot of them are 50 years old, and they can't compete with the prices that are against renewable energy solar in the middle of the day kind of thing. But is it worthwhile keeping those old clunkers going 24 hours a day just so they can step into the market late in the afternoon and the early evening? It's a really hard, and these are issues that... Um, you know, the smartest energy mines in Australia and the world are, are coming to terms with. And there's no easy answer. I think you've got to have all options on the table. So would this proposed capacity mechanism essentially do what happened last week, which is pay power companies to put energy into the grid when we need it in a crisis, but in a much more orderly plan way? Essentially, yeah, that's what, what they're doing. And I think, let's say last week we did have the capacity mechanism rather than putting a, a price cap on, on power in the eastern states or then eventually suspending the market. You wouldn't have to do that. You'd see a situation where the energy market operator would look in New South Wales or Victoria or Queensland or South Australia and see that there's going to be a big shortage and they would put the call out to these companies who are contracted up to them to deliver capacity and they would pay them to step into the breach. You're right, though, it would be a lot more orderly than what happened last week. <laughs> Okay. And finally, Mark, just to clarify where your analysis kind of lands on this this idea of a capacity mechanism, I'm hearing from you that you think we need one and you think that in some states it would require subsidising at least gas, if not coal, in order to make up the shortfall while we still build our battery storage capacity over the next, say, 5, 10, 15 years. Look, essentially, look, I think a lot of the problem that we have is, that, you know, I've been writing about energy for a fair while, and even 10 years ago, 
it was sort of acceptance that coal was going to get phased out, but gas would step up as a sort of transition fuel, as we were talking about before, or the way to renewables. But I think a lot of environmental activists and even the Greens are sort of lumped in gas, which is a fossil fuel, in with coal, and it's seen perceived to be just as bad. I don't think the emissions are as bad, but I think we need to have and acceptance by all sides that it's not going to be a smooth transition. There's going to be bumps in the roads. And we we all know that we're moving towards net zero by 2050, but I think we've got to balance that with the need that we've got to keep the lights on for households and businesses and, and hopefully not pay a doubling of our electricity bills each year to be able to do that. So I think we need to be a bit realistic with how we do it. And we need to have mechanisms in place, such as the capacity mechanism, which helps provide stability in the grid. That was Mark Ludlow from the AFR, and I'll be quite interested to see if there is agreement on this capacity mechanism and whether politicians like, say, the New Teal Independents, who are very big on climate change and renewables, of course, would support a mechanism that would steer a lot of money towards coal, or if not coal, at least gas, and whether funding gas as a transition fuel would be a compromise they'd be willing to accept. Tomorrow on The Briefing, why is NASA launching rockets from the Northern Territory? Listener.